You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your copy of God's Word, will you grab that and go with me to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one this morning. You'll find some Bibles on those tables in the back of the room, and you can take one now and use that to follow along with us this morning if you'd like to. This morning we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1. If you're willing and able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these words, beginning in Colossians three eighteen. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we're getting into the rough and tumble of life today, aren't we? We have a few weeks left in this uh, study of Colossians, and then we'll look at Philemon after that. Last week, we left off in Colossians 3.17, where Paul, the author of this letter, gives us an all-encompassing, all-inclusive command. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything, everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, that's pretty darn decisive, isn't it? Do everything. There's no area of your life or mine this command doesn't touch. Now, in today's passage, Paul is going to focus on two specific examples from life. He's going to teach us how to do family and work in the name of the Lord. Family and work in the name of the Lord. If last week's passage was about beauty, the beauty of the Christian community, today's is about authority. Now that word, we're angsty, aren't we? We're angsty about authority these days, largely because of the number of stories in the news in recent years of politicians and pastors and celebrities and all sorts of people who have abused their authority. So that makes us angsty, we're squirming already a little bit thinking about this. But we must see that all of these stories about the abuse of authority, these do not constitute an argument for anarchy. Intuitively, we know, intuitively, we know that the answer to bad authority isn't no authority. The answer to bad authority is good, and as Christians, we would say godly authority. Good and godly authority is life-giving, selfless, loving, 
Good and godly authority always submits itself to the one who has all authority, to the one who is preeminent, Jesus Christ the Lord. So let's think more about this good and godly authority in the context of the household and the workplace. Here at the end of Colossians 3, in the beginning of chapter 4, Paul addresses three relationships. The husband-wife relationship, the parent-child relationship, and the employer-employee relationship. So in this one passage, he addresses about two-thirds of your week. Most people spend about a third of their week working, about a third of their week doing things with family, and about a third of their week sleeping. At least you should. So in this one passage, nine verses, Paul gets at about two-thirds of life. Talk about a highly practical passage. Now, if you came this morning and you're thinking, well, but wait a minute, I'm not married, and I don't have children. Understand, this is still relevant for you. Surely, surely you are connected to some people who are married. Surely you are connected to some people who have children. You need to be able to speak into their lives, give them some godly counsel. That's why you're here today, so that you can have a better understanding of what God's Word has to say on these subjects. So first, let's look at the husband-wife relationship. Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So if you weren't squirming before, surely you are now. Wives, the first command, this is a series of rapid-fire commands here, and the first one is for the wives. Wives, submit. Now, we should begin by noting what Paul does not say. First, he does not say that all women are to submit to all men. Rather, that a particular woman is to submit to a particular man, a wife to her husband. Second, Paul does not say that a wife is to obey her husband. Later in this same passage, he will call children to obey their parents. He'll call bondservants to obey their earthly masters. When he speaks to wives here, he chooses a different verb. He doesn't say obey. So whatever submission means, it's different from obedience. Third, notice Paul does not speak directly to the husbands here. He doesn't say, husbands, see to it. See to it that your wife remains submissive. No. He speaks to the wives. This is a matter for Christian wives to heed, for them to live out. This is a voluntary submission. It's not a forced or coerced falling into place. Christian wives are to hear this instruction, trust in the goodness of God and the goodness of God's plan for marriage, and willingly, joyfully submit. So that's what Paul doesn't say. Now, what does he say and why does he say it? Why does he say it? Well, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. To submit is to come under the authority of another, voluntarily here, to come under the authority of another. The Bible teaches us that men and women, husbands and wives, are equal in dignity, value, worth, created in the image of God, equal. And yet, they have complementary roles to play within the context of the family. In biblical terminology, the husband is the head 
That's a term that comes from Ephesians 5, another of Paul's letters. He's the head, meaning he is the authority figure, but not the ultimate authority, as we'll see in a minute. The husband is the head, the wife is the helper. That term comes from Genesis 2, the very beginning of the biblical narrative. To be the head is to be the spiritual leader of the family, to be the helper. Now that word is a slightly, it's, it's not quite the best translation of that Hebrew word in Genesis. The better translation is strong helper. See, in the beginning of the biblical story, the wife is created from the rib of the man, right? The picture is that they're incomplete without the other. Adam is lacking. He needs something. And so God provides exactly what he needs. And what is it? The gift of the woman the helper fit for him. But what's interesting is that word translated as helper, almost always in the Bible, it's used of God himself. And when it's not, it's used of military help, reinforcements without which the battle would be lost. So the woman is not the helper in the sense of a domestic servant. No, she's the strong helper. Without her, the battle will be lost. The man is the head spiritual leader. The woman is the strong helper. This is God's design for the marriage relationship. So to submit then, ladies, to submit to your husbands means to willingly, joyfully affirm him, support him, trust him to be the spiritual leader God has called him to be. Now, men, this of course assumes that we are leading and loving our families as Christ does. And we'll get to that in a moment. It does not mean the husband is always right. It does not mean that the husband is more intelligent, more competent, or any of that. It simply means this is God's design for marriage. I mean, it doesn't mean we're always right. My wife tells me often, you are always confident and sometimes correct. She's a wise lady. This is God's design for marriage. Now, when you see that, ladies, you'll see that submission to your husband ultimately is submission to God. You're saying, I understand the way God has designed the family. I understand the way he has built this unit we call the family. And so you're ultimately trusting in God as you submit to your own husband. And that's why Paul can say this is fitting in the Lord. It's fitting, it's the fitting way for you to live as someone who acknowledges Jesus Christ as the Lord of all creation and the Lord of marriage. So ladies, submit to your husband. Affirm him as the spiritual leader of the family. Now in the next verse, Paul speaks directly to the husbands. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is a two-part command. First, love your wives. In Ephesians 5, that parallel passage where we learn that the husband is the head, the spiritual leader, Paul adds to this. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, yes, you have the authority in the family, not ultimate authority, but you have the authority God has entrusted to you. But remember that headship, authority, it's been redefined by Jesus. Jesus redefines all leadership as servant leadership. He redefines all strength as sacrificial strength. Men, we are to sacrifice our own desires, 
our time, our resources for the sake of our families. Men, you're not the king of the castle. Jesus is. And that means if you wear a crown, it better be a crown of thorns. Not that you're laying down your life for the sins of your family. Only Jesus could accomplish such a feat, but you're following him in the way he leads. You're following him in the way he loves. And that means yours is an authority that bleeds for others. Men, you're called to love your wives more than your professional hopes, your cherished dreams, more than your thoughts of what marriage would be like. You're called to love your wife. And then there's a second part to this command. Love your wife and do not be harsh with her. A more literal translation here is don't make her bitter. Don't make her resentful of your leadership. See, there are some men who are spiritual eunuchs. They've abdicated their authority in the family. They've disconnected from their families. They're disinterested in spiritual realities. They're spiritual eunuchs. There are others who bring more of a cultural idea of manhood to the home, and they're spiritual bullies, just bossing everyone around, king of the castle sort of approach. Paul wants us to understand it's not just that you lead, but how you lead that matters. We're called to love and lead with a gentleness here, with a gentleness. There's another parallel passage, 1 Peter 3. And in 1 Peter 3, the apostle Peter speaks to the husbands. And here's what he says. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Notice, husbands, that your wives are equal. They are heirs with you of the grace of life. They're equal. And Peter also says they're more fragile. They are the weaker vessel. That's why you show them honor. Now here he's probably talking about physical weakness. Most women are physically weaker than men. He might also be hinting at a greater emotional sensitivity on the part of the woman. By God's design, this is the way the genders work, right? Men are a little bit more like a Yeti thermos. Tough, durable, and we tend to seal things up inside. Women are much more like a wine glass or a chalice. Far more beautiful. A little more expressive with their emotions compared to that thermos. It's a lot easier to see what's happening inside the wine glass, right? And more fragile. Peter's point is the woman deserves to be handled with care. With care, gentlemen. Now, how serious is this? Oh, it's very serious. In fact, Peter says, men, when we don't treat our wives this way, when we don't show honor to them, our prayers will be hindered? Now, theologically, I've got to be honest with you, I'm not even sure how that works. Peter doesn't elaborate. He doesn't tell us how it works. He just says that when you don't treat your wife this way, your communication with God will be affected negatively. So if we want to communicate with God, then we ought to show honor to our wives. So let's pause for a moment for some application here before moving on. Let's talk about some next steps. Ladies, back to you. 
Are you joyfully, willingly affirming your husband as the spiritual leader of your family? Or are you fighting him? Gentlemen, are you loving and leading the way Jesus does? Do you see the brilliance of God's design here? When the husband loves and leads this way as Jesus does, wifely submission is not a burden, it's a great joy. Do you see the brilliance of God's design? So husbands, are you leading this way? Or have you broken your wife with your inconsiderate actions, with your unkind words? She is the weaker vessel. She deserves to be handled with care. If you've hurt her, you're the spiritual leader, so you take the initiative in setting things right. Confess your sin to God, ask for his forgiveness, and ask for hers. That is the husband-wife relationship. Secondly, Paul moves on now to address the parent-child relationship. The parent-child relationship. In verse 20, he gives a command to the children. So everyone in the room who's under the age of 18, this is God via the Apostle Paul speaking directly to you now. So listen carefully. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So there's the command. Obey. Obey. Listen to, receive, obey the instruction of your parents. Well, what sort of instruction? I'm glad you've asked because Paul addresses that. Obey your parents in everything, he says. You mean like when they limit my screen time? Yep. You mean like when they tell me how I'm supposed to think about my relationships? Yep. But notice that Paul tells you why to do it. And contrary to what your parents sometimes say, it's not simply because they say so. There's a deeper reason. And children, if you don't see this deeper reason, you'll never be obedient. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Your parents are not the ultimate authority. Jesus is the ultimate authority. He's the king of the castle. He's the lord of the household. And he's the one who has organized the family this way, giving you the gift of parents to protect you to provide for you, to govern and guide, and one day to send you out into the world to live as faithful participants in God's story. This is the way the Lord Jesus has designed the family. And so that's why you obey your parents. Now parents, just as the call for wives to submit to their husbands, just as that assumed that the husband is leading and loving like Jesus, this command, for children to obey you, it assumes that you are giving them instruction, right? It assumes that instruction is happening in the context of the home. Jesus is the ultimate authority of the family. And Jesus calls you parents to be the primary educators, the primary instructors of your children, not me, not our children's director here at Faith Church. We're here to come alongside you and help in a variety of ways, but yours is the primary role. But you must also understand that Jesus tells you how to instruct. He tells you that his word is to be the content of the instruction. So many Christian parents are like that old joke about the Harvard man. 
You can always tell a Harvard man, but you can't tell him much. (laughs) We've established this idea that parents have the primary authority in the home, right, under God. But that sometimes parents think that that means that whatever they happen to think about raising their children and whatever they happen to think should be the top priority, that God automatically blesses it. No, no, parents, that's not right. Because ultimately, Jesus has authority over your family. And he tells you the instruction must be based on his word. Now, once we've understood that, the second thing, parents, we must come to terms with is that that Christ-centered instruction we give to our children, the application of that instruction must change as our children change, as they grow. Think of parenting as a four-stage process. The first stage we could call the guarding stage. Roughly speaking, these are just rough ages, roughly speaking, this is birth to age five. In those early years, we are guarding our children who are brand new to this great big world with all of its joys and all of its dangers. So our instruction is very uncomplicated, very straightforward. It usually has to do with do this, don't do that. So one bite of food at a time. Don't bite me. Don't bite your brother. God help us all, don't bite the dog. Very uncomplicated, straightforward instruction. Secondly, we move on to the training stage. Roughly speaking, ages 5 to 12. At this stage, we must go deeper with the instruction we give to our children. They will become far more inquisitive in this stage of development. They'll have lots of questions, and our answers need to come with more explanation. Now, we're no longer simply introducing our children to the world. We're helping them understand how God's world works. So here, we need to get to the why behind the what. No longer does the simple imperative, don't tell lies, no longer does that work because I've not yet gotten to the why behind the what. What I need to say to my son is, don't tell lies because relationships are built on trust and lying breaks trust. Therefore, lying breaks the relationships that God has given us. We go deeper with the instruction, the why behind the what. The third stage of parenting we could call the coaching stage, ages 12 to 18. Let me pause for a second and say so many parents panic when they hit this stage of the parenting journey. Don't panic. Remind yourself that God ordained this stage of life. God ordained it so that each and every one of us must go through this stage of life. He has a good plan in it. Don't panic. But do see that our instruction as parents, it must be applied a bit differently at this third stage. Now, there will need to be more two-way conversations. Two-way conversations will be far more effective than impatient prohibitions. At this stage of life, we need to connect with our children more than we correct them. This doesn't mean that that discipline suddenly disappears. Like a good coach, there will be times where you need to yank a player off the field, put his butt on the bench for a while. That's what a good coach does. But it does mean that you are going to be a little more on the sidelines now. 
you're allowing a little more room for your child to make decisions with some natural consequences, preparing for that day when he or she will go out into this great big world without mom and dad by their side. The fourth and the final stage of parenting is the befriending stage, ages 18 plus. We could also call this the sending stage. Now you have sent your children out into the world. Instruction will continue, though now it will look much more like one friend sharing wisdom with another. Those two-way conversations that happened that started to develop in the coaching stage of parenting, they'll continue, but now it feels less like a coach speaking to an athlete and more like a longtime friend sharing wisdom with another. To simplify this even more and help you visualize it, when your children are very young, you're out in front of them. As they grow, and especially as they enter the teenage years, slowly you must fall back beside them. And then eventually you send them out into the world and you fall back even more behind them, rooting them on, praying for them, cheering them on. So many of our parenting failures, and we all have parenting failures, so many of our parenting failures come because either we don't provide Christ-centered instruction at all, or we do provide the Christ-centered instruction, but not being mindful of where our children are in these stages of development. If you try to befriend your five-year-old daughter, you don't make her a friend, you make her a brat. You hear me? If you try to guard your 18-year-old son, you don't shield him from the world, you send him out into the world as a rebel who will not come to you when he does need counsel. Do you see? So parents, Give that Christ-centered instruction, but be mindful of where your child or where your children are in this journey. Fathers, we have a unique role to play here. We know that because Paul singles us out next. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, why doesn't Paul address the mothers here? Is it because the mothers are less important? Absolutely not because the father is the head, the spiritual leader of the family. It's probably also because God commands to our weaknesses. God knows that most mothers don't need a reminder to remain involved in the day-to-day instruction and discipline of their children, but fathers do need that reminder. And so Paul does precisely that. Fathers, do not provoke your children. It's very similar to what was said earlier about the way we're supposed to treat our wives. Don't embitter them. Don't irritate them. The idea here is coach them, but do so without crushing them. Yes, discipline, but discipline in a way that encourages, that gives strength rather than discouraging. Father, step up to the plate here. Your family needs you. The world needs you. Father hunger is one of the central maladies of our day. And when you lose the father, you gain weirdness, and in so many ways. Lastly, Paul goes on at the end of the passage 
to speak to the employer-employee relationship. He's talked about authority as the husband is to exercise it, authority as parents are to exercise it, and now at the end, he talks about managerial authority. Managerial authority. Now, when he transitions here to the employer-employee relationship, for us, reading this today, contemporary readers, this seems a bit abrupt. Like we were just talking about the family. Why now all of a sudden are we talking about work? But in the first century, in Paul's time and culture, this would have been a very natural transition because in his day, the household included what we would call the nuclear family. It also included extended family members and bond servants or slaves. The ancient economy relied on slavery. And that's what Paul is talking about here. But we must understand, this is not the race-based slavery of more recent centuries. This is a different kind of slavery. A person became a slave as they were captured in war or as they were purchased or inherited. Some slaves in this cultural setting in the ancient world actually were treated quite well, almost like a, a professional group. Others were treated not as well. They were treated as subhuman chattel. Because slavery was a fixed structure in the ancient world, the New Testament authors call for transformation from within. Transformation from within. And so here in this passage, Paul will call the bondservants and the masters both to follow Jesus, whatever their structural reality might be. It's almost as if he's saying to them in the ancient world, you're in this maze, you're like a, a mouse in a maze. And you're stuck in that maze. You're not getting out of it right now, but I'll show you how to navigate it. I'll show you how to navigate it. Now for us, in our culture, in our setting, we're not in that same maze. But what he says here does have implications for the way we understand managerial authority today. Notice first he speaks to the bond servants. That would be workers for us today. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So the command for the worker here is the same command that was given to the children earlier, obey. Obey in everything. But in this type of relationship, the obedience is slightly different, right? In our contemporary setting, this obedience comes in the form of a trade agreement, right? That's how employment works. I will obey your instruction. I will provide you with my labor, whatever that might be, and you will provide me with income. That's the trade. Now notice here how when Paul speaks to the workers, he both expands and restricts the manager's authority. He expands it by saying, obey in everything. So once you've entered into this type of trade agreement with someone, you don't get to pick and choose which orders to follow. You obey your manager, your boss, in everything related to the job. And you don't obey only when the manager is watching you. You don't do this by way of eye service as a people pleaser, no. You perform excellently always because you understand that the true Lord, the true master, Jesus, is always watching. He's the one who's given you those abilities. He's the one who's blessed you with that opportunity. So contribute to the flourishing of his world by performing excellently in your work, whatever it is. As a teacher, 
as an engineer, as a chemist, as a contractor, whatever your work might be. So Paul first expands that managerial authority, obey in everything, but then he immediately restricts it. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Your boss, your manager, is simply your earthly manager. So that begs the question, what should I do if my earthly manager calls me to do something, insists that I do something that I believe would displease my heavenly master, the Lord Jesus? I know some of you are facing this very situation right now. When that happens, with gentleness and respect, we draw a line. Just like Daniel and his friends did when they worked for the king of Babylon in Daniel chapter 1. There came a time where they had to draw a line and not do what their earthly master was calling them to do. But understand that Daniel did that with courage and he did it in a very courteous way. He was not unkind. He was not a jerk for Jesus. Nobody wants that. It was courage displayed in a very courteous way. And sometimes all it takes is one stand like that to bring about change to your workplace. Other times, you take a stand like that. You do it with gentleness and it's ignored. Falls on deaf ears or just outright rejected. If that happens consistently, maybe, not certainly, but maybe, it's time to look for a new earthly master. Time to look for a new employer. Paul wraps up now by speaking to the master, the manager, the boss. So if you oversee one person, team of people, multiple teams of people, this applies to you. Masters, managers, treat your bond servants, treat your workers justly and fairly. Why? Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Jesus is the master's master, the boss's boss. All good and godly authority submits itself to the one who has all authority, to Jesus himself. All of us who have authority in the workplace and call ourselves followers of Christ are to model the type of authority that Jesus shows us. So manager, boss, let me ask you, how are you treating your workers? Are you showing them the generosity that Jesus has shown you? Are you showing them that generosity in the way you compensate them? How do you speak to them when you correct them? Are you encouraging them, equipping them to flourish in that role? These are the things that Jesus does for us. This is the way he exercises his authority. What your family needs and what your workplace needs is not less authority, but more good and godly authority, more Christ-centered authority. I want to come back to one thing I intentionally skipped earlier. I want to come back to this passage that we read when we were looking at Colossians chapter 2. Because I know we've covered a lot of ground this morning. And perhaps there's some healing that needs to happen in the context of your family. So I want to read these words again. 
You know them. You've heard them. But I want you to hear them now in the context of the family. In Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Believer, your failures, your sins as a son or a daughter have been nailed to the cross of Christ. Believer, your failures, your sins as a mom or a dad have been nailed to the cross of Christ. You are forgiven. You really are. And so now, as a forgiven follower of Jesus, maybe you need to go and have some healing conversations in the context of your family. Parent to child, child to parent, husband to wife, wife to husband. We're called to bear with one another, to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us. We'll let that be the final word. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word is so deeply theological and intensely practical all at once. How it addresses every type of relationship. And I pray this morning as we have opened your word that you are at work in our hearts for those marriages that are in rough spots. I pray that you would bring healing today. For those relationships between parents and children that are in rough spots, I pray that you would bring healing today. The conversations that need to happen, God, move them forward. Grant the right words, the right time, the right tone. We know we are called to forgive. It's not easy. And honestly, sometimes we just don't want to. But by the power of your spirit and convicted by the truth of your word, lead us. Lead us. We submit to you the ultimate authority. Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.